0: I think the longer you uh, walk with the Lord, the more associations you tend to make and remember, and even, you know, singing some of these songs, you associate it with certain events or situations, and what a blessing to be able to remember the goodness of God just by way of singing the truth of God. It's a blessing to do that. Well, good morning, and welcome to Grace Bible Church. My name's Jacob Hatfield. I'm the preaching pastor here, and it's so good to gather for worship. I want to start this morning by asking you a question, and it's kind of a question of association. So I'm going to say a word, and I want to know what you think. So when I use the word distinction, what comes to mind for you? So a distinction is, is making a difference or noting a difference between two things, right? If we make a distinction, we're saying Thing one, that's a Dr. Seuss reference, I better not use that. Thing A has certain characteristics and qualities and thing B doesn't. Okay, now often when we make a distinction, we are distinguishing between good and bad. Not all the time, right? But often we are saying, well, this is good, but it's distinct from this over here. So let me just give you a couple of examples. Let's say you're having people over for dinner and you're washing vegetables or fruit, right? No, I'm just kidding. You're washing up vegetables or fruit and you're making a distinction. Is this good for eating? Ooh, this one's rotten. We're gonna gonna throw that away, right? Or maybe as you think about the future, we have a lot of middle school, high school, young adult age people in this congregation. As you consider the future, you are going to make distinctions. You're going to look at a vocational track or an educational track and you're going to say, okay, I've weighed the options, this looks good, this doesn't look good. You're making a distinction. So do we have that in our mind where we know what a distinction is, right? Now I start this way because in our text today, in Malachi 3, the people of God bring up an apparent lack of distinction. They look at the way that the world around them and within the covenant community is operating and they make a wrong assumption that God has failed, to distinguish between good and evil. They look at the success of the wicked and they assume, well, God must not make any distinction. It's all the same. Good, evil, right, wrong, doesn't matter. They're dealing with an apparent lack of distinction. This is a problem for many reasons and we're going to see why that's a problem. But this is often the case. And we have seen this Perceived failure of God many times. If you remember from the Psalms over the last two summers, oftentimes the psalmist cries out to God and says, Why? Why are those who do not love you, do not trust you, do not worship you, why are they doing well while the righteous seem to suffer? And this is the thing that gets brought up, not in a real soft or gentle way, but the people of God are going to bring this accusation to God, that apparently there's no distinction. So this is the issue that we need to deal with today from our text. So would you open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3? We're going to finish chapter 3 today, so that's exciting. And we will start with verse 13. Now we can divide our section into two parts today, 13 to 15, is the first, and then 16 to 18 will be the second section that we look at. So open your Bibles, please, and follow along. Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 13. "'Your words have been hard against me,' says the Lord. "'But you say, how have we spoken against you? "'You have said, it is vain to serve God. "'What is the prophet in our keeping his charge?' Or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who loves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Let's pray together as we start this morning. Father, we need help now in seeing your word rightly. We do not want to assume that we understand everything about the text just because we read it. We need to understand with the eyes of our heart, not just our physical eyes. We don't want to read the Bible just as any other book because it is unlike any other book. And so we gather here today, Lord, not to hear the wisdom of a man, not to hear some encouraging, positive, uh, self-help type instruction. God, we need to hear from you this morning. You have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? And so we gather here today under the banner of Christ and we ask for your help. We do not want to be among those who indict you or misunderstand your ways and and have a wrong perception of you, but we want to be among those who fear you, who trust you, and who love you. So would you please do that work in our heart? You have... You have prepared us through the week. You have led us. And now even in our worship, our hearts are are stirred with affections for you. And so please, plant your word deep in our hearts. Help it to take root. And would we be changed by our time together this morning, Lord. We thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin now in verse 13, we're going to see the same literary structure that we have seen many times already in the book of Malachi. It starts with God making a statement to the people, a statement about their attitude or activity, their actions. And the people hear this and they respond by saying, whoa, hang on, that's not what's going on, we didn't do that. And God says, yes, here's the ways that you have done exactly what I am telling you you have done. Verse 13 starts by saying that the words of the people have been hard against the Lord. Now this isn't just they speak something true and God goes, oh, that is true, but that's that's hard to hear. I don't want to hear that. That's not what it means. It's not just disrespectful talk or talking about God in a rude way. The word hard against here means way more than that. And I want to just reference one passage to help you. In, in 2 Samuel 24, David wants to take a census of the nation of Israel. God says, don't do that. You're going to puff yourself up. It's going to go very badly. Don't do that. And Joab, the general of David, is arguing with him saying, don't do this thing. But David's words against Joab were hard. Same, same word translated here, hard against. He refused to take good counsel. That's what it means, that the words were hard against. The people of God had established in their mind, no, we don't, we don't care what God says. This is what's going on. We have the right perspective. We have the right interpretation. Thank you very much. We don't care. Their words were hard against the Lord. They did not submit themselves to his instruction. And so not only were the people dishonoring God, with the way that they were talking, but they were insisting that their way of thinking was best. And here in verse 14, then, I think we see the error, the, the content of their error. Look at 14 again. God says, You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit in keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So, what's the error? What, what have they done with the instruction of the Lord? They have taken obedience to God, which in this text is defined as walking in his ways, keeping his charge, being obedient to God. They have taken that and they have turned service to God into a transaction. Remember this from the last couple of weeks? We talked about transactional relationship with God. I think that's exactly what's happening here. If, if they were doing the right things... If they were walking in humility before God, if they were doing their best to obey God, then God, by all rights, should owe them something in return. That's a transaction where I do one thing for you and you repay me in some way. That's why the language here is talking, there's no profit in other words, we're not getting anything out of this. What good is it if we are going to restrain ourselves, restrict our behavior, we're not going to take advantage of the pleasures of the world, we're going to purify ourselves before God, and yet, what do we get out of it? Do you see what they're doing here? There's no profit in keeping his charge. How does this benefit us? And you can just, you can hear the thinking of the people as they look around, and this is repeated, right? The wicked around them. And now, Wicked and righteous are the two classifications that we use, right? For people who love and follow God, these are general categories. They look around at those who don't fear God, and it seems to be that their life is easy. They have everything they need. They're not struggling, they're not suffering, they're not doing anything. And so the people wrongfully assume, hmm, well, if they don't love God and everything's going good, then what's the difference? There's no distinction, between those who love God, serve Him, follow Him, and those who don't. Do you see the error of the thinking here from the people of God? The ignorance of God's law and His character causes the people to speak this way because they viewed their relationship with God as a transactional one rather than how they should have viewed it. When God doesn't deliver the goods in response to their obedience, they get mad. And they say, huh, well, fine, Apparently, God just doesn't care who's righteous and who's wicked. There's, there's no difference. So why should we keep living this way if there's no benefit to us? Now, verse 15. You can read a little bit of tone into this, and I know that's not always a good thing, but bear with me. I think it demonstrates the petty, childlike response of the people of God to him. So I don't know what your translations say, a a good rendering of these first words of verse 15 would be, from now on, we will call the arrogant blessed. From this point on, this is just how we're going to call it. Call it as I see it kind of a thing. Now here's what I'm saying. Have you ever dealt with a young person? We have a lot of teachers here with your students, maybe parents with your kids. Sometimes what happens is that when a child receives instruction or correction that restricts what they want to do, they respond with an exaggerated, overreactive response. Has that ever been the case? Let me give you an example. This is really silly, but you'll get it. Let's say that you tell a child, okay, after dinner, you can have one cookie. That's it. Now, upon hearing this devastating, life-altering news, the child, in their childlikeness, might respond with something like, well, fine, then I'm never gonna have any cookies ever again in my life. That's an overreaction, right? And that is kind of what's happening here with the people of God. They do not see any distinction between the righteous and the wicked. They don't see any profit in them keeping God's law while everybody else doesn't. So they throw up their hands, and like the young child, they say, well, fine, then from now on, everyone who's arrogant is blessed. And they just have this kind of, this immature, over-exaggerated response to God. We can say that the error of their thinking was that they expected a reward for obedience, right? That's exactly what's going on. They expected that God should materially respond to their spiritual effort, And this is a problem because that's not the way it works with God. They wrongfully assume that God must take pleasure in the wicked. Well, look at them, they're doing great. And that's not the case at all. One of the big problems, and here's where I want to really point this out. The people of God here did not understand the nature of God's blessing. They assumed it would look a certain way. Well, if if we do this, That in the transactional nature, God must do this. But it's not happening. Their big problem was that they did not understand the nature of God's blessing. And I wonder if we do at times. Do you know how God blesses his people? Do you ever find yourself stuck in the game of comparison? Where you you look at people around you, people who... Don't love God, never darken the door of a church. They're willing to cross the moral or ethical lines in order to position themselves or to profit in a circumstance situation. Do you ever look at their life and say, This isn't fair? I serve God, I try to be obedient, I do all the right things, and yet their life is infinitely easier than mine, at least it seems. It's really dangerous because what we're doing when we engage in that kind of thought experiment, is we are assuming that because of our obedience, God owes us some kind of favor. The blessing of God is not always what we think it is. We need to understand the nature of God's blessing or we will distort every biblical text that speaks of it. So do you know what the greatest blessing of God is? If I were to call you up here right now and say, tell all of us, what's the greatest blessing of God? Don't get nervous. I won't call on anyone. What would you say? The greatest blessing of God is not money. It is not position, prominence, reputation. It's not faith, which he gives us. It's not the greatest blessing. The greatest blessing of God is God himself. It's God himself. That has been the united theme of these last three books of the Old Testament. God's call to his people, return to me, return to me. He doesn't say, return to my gifts. Come take advantage of what I can do for you. He says, return to me. And all of the instruction, all of the correction, all of the teaching that he has given the people is to deal with their sin so that he can come and dwell with them. If we look at the broad history of redemption from the fall in the garden all the way to the new heavens and the new earth, the thrust of that redemptive history is that God would dwell with his people personally. That's the end goal because the presence of God himself is his greatest blessing to his people. Don't miss that. Do not start to chase after what God can do for you and forget that it's really about Him. It's about being with Him. So being satisfied with Him. Why do you think He calls His people return to me? Because He knows that He is what will truly satisfy, bring joy, happiness, pleasure, peace. All of that is in God Himself. So, When his people misunderstand this, they don't get the nature of God's blessing. They assume that it will be material. And when it's not, they accuse God of injustice. That's what's going on in these first three verses. And you can imagine, as God looks upon this situation, how it hurts his heart. His people just don't get it. And this is the common, common theme. And so before we continue on, we're going to see some good news now in this second section of Malachi. But before that, I just want to offer a little bit of encouragement for you and I. And primarily, this is for me. I'm I'm talking to myself. You guys just happen to be here to listen to me talk to myself. So maybe it'll be helpful for you. But I really want to encourage us, do not distort the blessings of God into material things only. Do not distort the blessing of God into material things only. That may very well be a part of his blessing to you, right? It might be, but it may very well not be. And if we only have categories in our thinking to say, okay, I've I've done what I need to do. I've been good. I have obeyed the law. Why is my life so hard? Don't despair. If your life is not where you thought it would be right now, if your social or economic status is not where you assumed it would be, you have Christ. If you belong to him, you have Christ and everything that comes by way of union with him. It is so much more important that we understand that than we chase after the gifts. Paul told the Ephesians in the very first chapter, chapter one, verse three, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The primary blessing of God is God himself. And I just want us to remember that. Don't be discouraged. Don't lose hope. God will care for you. And he is blessing you in ways that you might not understand but do not assume that if your life looks different than you thought, God has abandoned you. He hasn't. He never will. So take courage and trust in him to reveal himself to you and go after him, not just the things he can give you. Okay? That's for me, and maybe that's for you. Now, as we move on to the text, this is the second section now, verse 16 through the end of the chapter, we see for the very first time in Malachi the people have a right response to the word of God it's taken almost 3 whole chapters <laughs> for us to see a good response and here's what happens they hear the word of God and rather than just ignoring it or arguing as some of the people did in 13 to 15 they actually respond rightly so let's read verse 16 to 18 again just to get this in our context Malachi 3:16 then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once again you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Now, we mentioned distinctions at the beginning of the service. And we see it right here again in our passage. So my question is, what is the characteristic? What makes group B in 16 to 18 different from group A in 13 to 15? What is the thing that separates them? What creates a distinction, if you will? Look at the passage. Who is it? Those who fear the Lord. There's the key. There's the difference. This group of people feared God. Okay, well, what does that mean? Might not be apparent on the surface. In the Old Testament, 270 times the word fear is used. There are three different Hebrew words that are translated into English as fear, and they all mean something a little bit different. So the first word is translated, it means Uh, to to be in dread, to have this heavy, oppressive fear. The next one means, the next word that's translated as fear, means to be terrified, kind of a fear of your life, kind of terror that can grip you. The third one is translated as to show reverence or to show respect. So which of those three do you think is being translated here in Malachi 3.16? Dread, terror, or to show reverence? Well, of course, it's the third one, right? The word yar in Hebrew is translated here to show that the people did not fear God in a kind of flinching way because they were afraid of what would happen, but they honored him. They revered his name. They showed respect to God. They heard the words of God and they understood, oh man, we are in trouble if we do not obey the voice of God. So those who feared God got together and they talked They use their words. Now, notice the difference. The words are a big deal in this passage. If we look back at the start in 13, God says, your words have been hard against me. So we're dealing with speech, right? And then we get down here to 16, and it says, those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. So you can see a distinction also in the use of words. One group uses their words to argue with God, and the other group who fears God uses them to, How? Well, we can draw some implications here, I think. It doesn't say explicitly in the text that they repented, that they did whatever. But that's what happened, right? When those who fear God speak with one another, what is that speech? They're encouraging each other. They're reminding one another of the goodness of God. They're saying, hey, don't you remember that it was just 50 years ago or whatever that God pulled us out of exile? He's done all these wonderful things. We had to fear him, we had to respect him, we got to revere his name. We should repent for what we're doing. Now again, this is implication of the text, but I think it's right because God hears them and answers their prayer. So rather than using their words to accuse God wrongly, by the way, they use their words to repent and to call on the Lord, which brings about repentance and God hears them when they pray. We see that in the end of verse 16. And a book of remembrance was written before him. Now what is this book? What's the book? Anyone want to take a stab? There are several books mentioned in the Bible. And one of them, I'll just cite a couple so we get a little idea. In Psalm 139, maybe you remember this, David is talking about God's knowledge of our creation, our being formed In the mother's womb. Remember this from Psalm 139? And he talks about God's intimate involvement in that process. And here's what he says, verse 16 Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was not one of them. So before you or I ever came on the scene, before David was born, before any of that, God writes your precise numbers of days in his book. Now that's a sermon in itself and we'll get there when we get there in the Psalms. There's another book that's talked about in Revelation 13, the Lamb's Book of Life, Where before the foundation of the world, God writes in this book the names of everyone that he is going to grant faith to, to believe in Jesus Christ and have eternal life. It's called the book of life because that's what it is. The names written there are those who will inherit salvation. So the book mentioned in Malachi 3 is similar, I think, in the sense that God is its author. Okay, This is a book written by God. I don't think it's the idea of an Ebenezer. We just talked about that and sang about that. Where From our perspective, we set up a memorial and we remember the works of God. This is God paying special attention to the repentance and the faith of his people and he remembers it in a unique way. So just like earlier in the text, when, they're, when the people are making the indictment, this would be verse... 14, uh, it's vain to serve God. What is the prophet in our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts, in his sight, in his presence? That's the same verbiage used here in verse 16, that the book of remembrance was written before him. Okay, so this is God's doing. This is in the presence of God. Now, is God in heaven just writing continually? Is, is this a literal book where he's just writing and writing and writing all of the things? No, I think this is a word picture. It is a spiritual ledger recording the times when God's people respond rightly with humility, with reverence, with fear. Now, when God's people obey him, when they fear him, when they walk in a manner worthy of the calling, God takes notice in a special way, and I think it pleases him greatly. I get this from the next two verses in 17 and 18. Read 17 with me. Then they shall be mine. Now, hang on. Who's they? Is it everyone? No, it's those who feared the Lord. We go back to the antecedent, right? Then they, the ones who feared the Lord, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares the son whom he loves. So, we're not looking at the present now. We're getting a glimpse into the future on a day that God will do something. He's going to take those who fear him and he is going to make them into his treasured possession. Now this treasured possession is really cool. This is one of the things I learned this week that was really exciting. Um, This phrase, treasured possession, means a unique, let's see, how can I explain this? Okay, here here we go, I got it. Just came to me. Okay, so think of a king in a kingdom. As king, he owns everything. I mean, he has the rights to everything. The king can ride up to your house, knock on your door, and demand that you feed him. He can demand that your son come to war. He can take your land, your property. He has ownership rights to everything. A treasured possession, the Hebrew word is segula, is a special thing within the general ownership of everything the king has. Okay, So within all he has rights to, there is a special thing that is close to his heart that is more valuable than everything else. I'll give you one cross-reference text to kind of illustrate how this can be seen. In 1 Chronicles 29, David is recounting all of the gifts that he is giving for the construction of the temple. Okay, you remember this? And he makes mention of all the national treasure that is coming in to the temple. The, the things that have come from the treasury, the things that the people have donated, and it's all within his purview, right? He's king. But then in verse three, in addition to all of these things, this is what he says. Moreover, this is First Chronicles nine three. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own, a segula of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. So within the general ownership, there is something precious to the king. That's what this word treasured possession means. Now back to Malachi 3. The people who feared the Lord, those who walked humbly before him, who obeyed his word, are within the covenant community the segula, the treasured possession, those who are precious to God. Paul says in Romans 9, not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, just because someone is born into the covenant community does not guarantee salvation. But God always preserves a remnant of his people who will love him and honor him, and fear him. And in Malachi 3, this remnant are the treasured possession, those who fear God, who he is going to make his special ones, and who obey his voice. Now, what we're seeing in verse 17 and 18 is a reference to a coming judgment, a coming distinction. You can see it even in the tense of the verb in verse 18. Then, once more, you shall see... In the future, you will see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And when this happens, when this future judgment, this future separation happens, there will be no doubt. No one will be able to say, hmm, how does God feel about the righteous or how does God feel about the wicked? Are they the same? There will be no doubt in that day of judgment who the wicked are and who the righteous are. Now, by God saying this in verse 18, that there is coming a day when the distinction will be obvious, is he admitting that currently there's no justice? Is he saying, you know what, you just need to wait. I'm not gonna be just right now, but there's coming a day where, oh boy, I'm gonna be really just. Is that what's going on? Does God act unjustly and bless the wicked for their wickedness? That's what the people assumed was happening. In these first three verses. And of course the short answer is no. God does not act unjustly. He cannot act unjustly. Moses or uh, Abraham when he's negotiating with God over the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. He says will not the God of the universe do what is right. That's rhetorical. The answer is yes. (laughs) He will do what is right. God only ever acts in justice. But Just as the people had misunderstood the blessing of God, right, they they had distorted what that meant, they have also misunderstood the justice of God. The fact that evil and wickedness and injustice exist in the world does not mean that God endorses Or approves of that evil, wickedness, or injustice. The existence of something does not mean approval on God's behalf. He hates sin, he hates wickedness, he hates injustice. And he does not act contrary to his nature, but he is patient. We've mentioned this patience of God. Just, it is one of the most precious realities to me, that God is patient. And he desires that sinners would repent, that they would fear God, that they would walk in front of him with humility and honor and respect. That's his desire. As we kind of put a bow on this and wrap it up, would you turn into the New Testament to the book of Romans? Romans chapter 2. And I want you to follow along as I read just a couple of verses. Paul is getting at the same situation that God is getting at in Malachi, this, this coming judgment. I'm going to read Romans 2 starting in verse 3 and then we'll just make a couple of comments and we'll close. But listen to how Paul summarizes this. Romans 2 verse 3. Do you suppose, O man Now, the the righteous judgment that Paul is talking about here in Romans 2, I think is the same event from Malachi 3. The, The future date. There is coming a day when all of God's wrath against the sin of man is building. As Paul said, they are storing it up and storing it up. And someday, that vessel will be full and God will pour out on wicked mankind all of his wrath in judgment and fury. Then you will see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Now you might say, good night. You just said there was good news in Malachi. Why do we have to end by talking about judgment and death and separation? You want to know why? Why? Because it is the reality that every one of us will face, and because I love you and I want you to know the truth. Do not assume that because you are sitting in this room this morning, going through the motions, being a good Christian, staying away from the icky stuff, doing the good stuff, don't assume that will save you. The people in verses 13 to 15 thought they were good with God, they did the right things. They brought sacrifices. They gave their tithe. They did all this. Don't assume that your works will save you. There is coming a day, this is not fictional, when there will be a literal and permanent separation of those who fear God and those who don't. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that if you work hard enough, you can be saved. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that somebody else worked hard enough. Jesus Christ, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The future that every one of us faces does not have to be uncertain for you. I do not assume that because you're here you are a Christian, but I am calling you, every one of you, fear God. Don't mess around with this. There is coming a separation, a judgment, a time when it will be vividly clear who loves God and who didn't. So do not think that you can work your way into the kingdom of God by doing the right things or being the right person. That's not how it works. The only way for us to avoid the wrath and judgment of God is to have your sin carried by Christ. And the way you take advantage of that is to confess your sin, repent, and trust in Jesus. That's why we talk about judgment. That is why we have to talk about sin. Because there is one cure and there is one hope and it is Jesus Christ. It is not your ability to obey the law. So I know that this sounds heavy and it is. But I want to leave you with a word of hope. Jesus is ready and willing to take all of your Filth, your sin, your regret, your guilt, and bear it. Call upon him for mercy, fear God, and repent. That's the best news you'll hear today that you don't have to carry that anymore. Let's pray. It's a hard word to hear, Father, that we can't do anything on our own to earn our position with you. We, we are so wired to want to work and do and accomplish in our own strength. But I thank you that the message of the gospel is so full of hope because it tells us we are not able to please you. But Christ perfectly pleased you by absorbing the punishment for the sins of your people in his own body. We're going to celebrate this in a moment at the table. And now because of what Jesus did, we can have confidence that when this separation takes place, when the righteous are adjudged from the wicked, we can stand with the righteous because of Jesus so God, for those of us who know you, who have put our faith in you, remind us to stay humble before you. We do not, we do not earn our standing because of our works. It is all of grace. And for those who do not yet know you in this way, who have been relying upon their own works and their own ability and their own brand of righteousness, God, convict them of the folly of this way of living and remind them that Jesus is the only way. So would you please do this this morning? Bring sorrow because of sin, but may it be a sorrow that leads to repentance and faith and trust. So thank you. And please continue this work now as we come to the table. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.